If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off last week with Mark eleven twenty-seven. 27. Um, before we turn now to God's Word, let's return to Him once again in prayer, asking God to make the one who we just sang about, Christ, make Him known through His Word. So let's go before the Lord. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we just sang, it's indeed in Christ alone uh, that we have life, in Christ alone that we stand, come what may. And we thank you, Father, for your Word which reveals Christ to us. Would you, Father, open our ears that we could hear Him, open our eyes that we could see Him, open our minds that we could know Him, open our hearts that we could embrace Him. Father, would you strengthen our weak hands and feet that we could indeed take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow Him. For we pray in His name. Amen. Well, here we are at message number 45. After starting this series at the end of September 2015, I'm pretty confident that... uh, By the time September comes around, we will have finished this series. But let's ask a question that we started out asking at the very beginning. Why study the Gospels? And why take this time in Mark in particular? Well, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is revealed. The Gospels are absolutely foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And remember, in Jesus' own words, as we see in Luke chapter 24, the Bible is all about him. It all, from Genesis to Revelation, points to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that one mediator between God and man. And that is an extraordinary, amazing claim that Jesus makes. For we see in the Old Testament, Jesus predicted in the Gospels again, Jesus revealed in Acts, the book of Acts, Jesus is preached in the epistles or the letters, Jesus is explained. And then in the final closing book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is expected. <coughs> At the center of the Christian faith is Jesus. He is the object of our faith. And as we've been saying, there is widespread ignorance and confusion as to who Jesus is. Well, why study Mark? Well, it's the shortest gospel, 16 chapters. It's believed to be the earliest and the core gospel upon which especially Matthew and Luke wrote their accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we've been seeing I like to refer to Mark as the shortest catechism where we answer those three questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, where are we in Mark? We are in the second half of Mark. Remember the hinge in chapter 8 where there was a confession of faith in Jesus as the Christ. And then immediately after that, there was the call to discipleship, the call to follow Christ. 
Chapters 11 through 16, which we've been in the past few weeks, cover only about a week in the life of Jesus, but it consumes, notice, nearly a third of Mark's gospel. And this is not a biography. None of the gospel accounts are true biographies as we understand them. They rather are theological docudramas. They are, the writers have a purpose, and we see more and more that their purpose is to get to the death of of Jesus, his work. The last chapters here in Mark are the climax and fulfillment of Jesus' ministry, not simply the end of it. Last week in Mark 11, verses 1 through 25, Mark told us more about King Jesus, King Jesus that he announced all the way back in his first chapter. He told us more as we saw the king entering Jerusalem, the king judging the temple and the king offering forgiveness. Quite surprisingly, it would seem that biblical truth shows up in the most unexpected places. What I'm thinking about now is a 1983 song by a singer-songwriter, not from Kentucky, which I like to quote if I can find him, but rather from Indiana, not too far away who was born with one name, changed his name to sort of a performance stage name, and is now back to his original birth name, John Mellencamp. In 1983, he wrote and sang the Authority Song. And here's the refrain of Authority Song. I fight authority, but authority always wins. Well, I fight authority, authority always wins. Well, I've been doing it since a young kid. I come out grinning. Well, I fight authority, authority always wins. Interestingly, I heard that this was his version of I fought the law, but the law won, an earlier song. Well, in this song, we hear the truth about man. Man fights authority. But we also hear the truth about God. His authority always wins in the end. Here we see man's rebellious resistance to God and God's sovereign control over all things, including the hearts of man. Now in our text this morning, the issue is one of authority. Jesus is once again confronted and questioned by the officials, the religious leaders of Israel. In our passage, Mark will tell us more about King Jesus as we see the question, the rejection, and the exercise of authority. Join with me now as I read chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, the question of authority. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, 
he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were, but shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In these first couple of verses, we see the religious leaders confronting Jesus. Here's the representatives of the Sanhedrin, all three groups comprising the 71 members of the Sanhedrin or council, the highest legal body in Israel. It was the ruling body of the nation over all religious matters and over various political matters as well. Now, why did they confront Jesus? Well, Jesus has just exercised immense authority. He has just judged the temple. He has overturned tables, driven people out, blocked the shortcut. Who has the right to cleanse and judge the temple? They come requesting his credentials. They want to see, as it were, his papers. Notice their question. Two times they ask, by what authority? Who gave you this authority? This is designed not to get information, but to trap Jesus. The questions are not sincere, but an attempt to embarrass Jesus, to intimidate him in front of those who were following Jesus. These things. What are these things? Well, what Jesus has just done in the temple in particular, but all of his ministry in particular. Because remember, Jesus has stirred up things throughout his ministry, and the religious leaders have been at various times seeking a way to put Jesus out, to some times we've read to destroy him, to get rid of him. Here's the trap. If Jesus says, His authority is from God. They can accuse him of blasphemy and can claim the right to kill him. But if Jesus says his authority is from man, they will recognize that's no authority at all and therefore worthy of judgment. But Jesus now in verses 29 through 30 will will pose a brilliant counter question. This is not... The military's version of survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. No, Jesus is not evading the issue at all. He's rather defining the issue. Here, he reveals himself rather than defends himself to those who would judge him rather than understand him. And his answer to their question will be conditional upon their answer to his question. He had one question for their two questions. What was John's authority for his ministry? Was it from heaven or was it from God? Or rather, was it from man? His question implies that he, that is Jesus, is not under the Sanhedrin, but rather he, Jesus, is over the Sanhedrin. His counter question is evidence of the very authority about which he is being questioned. Well, let's look at their answer and his response in verses 31 through 33. They are on the horns of a dilemma. 
Two possible replies they can make, from heaven or from man. If they refuse to acknowledge John's authority, then they can also refuse to acknowledge Jesus' authority. Because here, Jesus is making it clear. As John was the forerunner of Jesus, Jesus is saying their decision about John is their decision about me as well. Well, how do they answer? Notice their answer. We don't know. We don't know. Cowardice. Insincerity to save face. An unwillingness to know. Who are these people? They are the religious leaders. They are the shepherds of Israel. And they say, we don't know. Well, if they are unable to conclude whether John the Baptist was a true or a false prophet, then they have forfeited the right to be, to be the religious leaders of the nation. Here, in other words, they are unable to discern the ministry of John the Baptist. And what was John's ministry? Well, remember back early on, it was he came preaching a message of repentance and baptizing for repentance of sin. And people could refuse that message. They could refuse to repent. They could refuse to go the way of forgiveness. And John makes it clear that they do not have faith and they will not be saved from the coming judgment. Well, what is Jesus' response to their answer? We don't know. Well, Jesus doesn't answer their question because they have revealed themselves as not being competent to judge him. I want to step back and think about this as a lesson in evangelism. I don't know if you all have shared Christ with others, your family members, neighbors, co-workers, but you know, as soon as you start talking about Jesus, what can happen? Lots of objections. Well, what about this and what about that? And, and, and they're, guised, they're disguised as rational objections. But if you can hang in there with someone long enough, you find that these rational objections to Jesus are really displays of an emotional resistance to one thing. Losing control. Losing control. The religious leaders are faced with, with Jesus on the scene. They are faced with losing control. Losing control of ministry, losing control, as Jesus would say in many places, losing control of your very life as you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Usually, and indeed ultimately, everybody's problem with Jesus is a personal problem with Jesus. And yet... Even though Jesus didn't provide an answer here, he most certainly provides an answer by way of a parable. To answer their question and to show them the serious danger of their position. Of what will God do to those who challenge and then deny Jesus' authority. Join with me now as I read Mark chapter 12 verses 1 through 8, the rejection of authority. 
And he, that is Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This parable will serve as an interpretation of the assault on Jesus' authority that he has just experienced. Remember, Jesus uses parables, but it's been a long time in Mark, all the way back to chapter 4. For our last parable in Mark. And here is a long parable because Jesus is pronouncing serious judgment on the religious leaders of Israel. Remember, a parable, it can either soften a heart as there are ears to hear, or it can harden its hearers, as we saw in the parable of the soils or the parable of the seeds. And this parable, the scene is a vineyard, a metaphor, a picture of Old Testament Israel. You heard it from Isaiah 5 describing Israel as an out of control vineyard producing wild grapes instead of good grapes and unfaithful and therefore unfruitful. But the owner here, and Jesus is making it very clear, the owner is God and he rents this vineyard to tenants, the religious leaders of Israel from whom spiritual fruit was expected. And then what does he do? The owner sends his servants. Who are the servants of the Lord? My prophets. My, the servants are my prophets. He sends them over and over and over again to warn Israel, to call Israel back to covenant faithfulness to, to Yahweh the covenant-making and keeping God over and over again. Jesus, God sends His servants, the prophets. But finally, finally with John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet on the scene, God sends His Son. The sending of the servants, Jesus, God is appealing to the integrity of the tenants. And then God, knowing what uh, Israel was, how they were to respect the family, he sends the son. He's appealing to law of Israel and to compassion. The owner looks for fruit and he he finds none. He sends the, the servants. He sends the son. And how did the tenants treat the son? Just like the prophets. Beat them kill them. 
The owner looks for fruit. He finds none. The owner's son is killed. And the Lord will act in judgment. This parable of the vineyard was the spoken form of the parable of the fig tree which Jesus had just told. He expected fruit. There was none. It was cursed. It withered. It's another picture of judgment. Now go on to chapter verse 9. What an interesting question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? It's the hinge. It's the key to the parable. The question, what will the owner, what will God do? His servants have been beaten and abused. The prophets, his son, his own son, his beloved son has received the same treatment. What will the owner do? Well, even though the authority of God is rejected, seen in not respecting and responding to the servants and the Son, that is the prophets and Jesus, even though it's rejected, the authority of God is not eliminated. Quite to the contrary, in the parable we will now see the authority of God being exercised. The exercise of authority beginning in the second half of verse 9 all the way through verse 12. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Back to the hinge of verse 9. It's the key to the parable in the form of a question and an answer. We've heard the question, what will God do? What will the owner do? And here's the answer at the end of verse 9. God will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. The one who is rejected by men rejects those who reject him. My friends, this is a sober verse. A sober verse of both judgment and grace. Judgment since God's patience with the original tenants has run out. But grace, since what does God do? Are you ready for this? Did you see it? Did you hear it? He gives the vineyard to others. Others will not rent it. The vineyard, rather itself, will be given. Given to those who, unlike the tenants who worship the self, It's given to those who deny themselves and do all they can to inherit the kingdom. Warning here is the main point. Mark's readers are recognizing this in the fulfillment of the church in the first century, most likely Gentile believers in and around Rome. But notice, we're going to move from a vineyard to a building 
Because the rejected stone becomes the cornerstone. And it is clear that this is a metaphor for Jesus. Psalm 118 was about victory over enemies. And the cross would, in God's eternal plan, one day be seen not as an embarrassing defeat, but rather as a marvelous victory. Paul writes in Philippians that Jesus moves from humiliation to exaltation, and so also the Christian. This stone, is it a cornerstone, a capstone? Different um, commentators have tried to figure it out. Well, regardless, it is the stone which the expert builders had rejected. And yet it is the one stone that holds everything together. Jesus would be despised and rejected by these leaders as we heard in our servant songs of the Messiah from Isaiah. Despised and rejected, and yet Jesus was absolutely essential for access into the very presence of God. Do you see it? The capstone of the arch going into the temple, the cornerstone of the temple to which all of the walls are aligned. And what is the temple? It's that place where God said he would dwell. And now believers have access into the very holy of holies through this cornerstone, through this capstone. Jesus rejected and yet absolutely essential as people build their lives on him, the stone, yes, that causes stumbling, but also the stone upon which new life is built. The central meaning of the parable is that the son of the owner has come to claim what the owner rightfully expected from his vineyard. He has answered the question of 1128 as the beloved son and as the cornerstone. He has total authority to judge unrepentant Israel. Go back to verse 12. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. My friends, they understood all too well, but they rejected the offer. It's because that they do know who he is that they're going to kill him. And someone has once said, what is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God? We do it in our own personal lives. There are, believe it or not, churches that claim the name of Christ and yet are working really hard to push the authority of God away from them. Despite all of their deep-seated opposition against him, they were constrained by Jesus' authority to recognize that he was their master and judge. Now, old Israel's reaction would be incredible if it were not that we also ignore the truth about judgment every time we sin. Is that not the case? When we sin... We are ignoring the threat of judgment, aren't we? They had been warned that the penalty for killing Jesus would be certain death. But what did they do? They redoubled their efforts to kill him. I mean, this parable 
is amazing. Verse 9, and, and what will the owner do? He'll come and destroy the tenants. The owner is God. They perceive that this was spoken about them. And what do they do? Do they fall on their faces in repentance? They double down. My friends, that's what our hearts are like unless they are softened by the grace of the gospel. They double down and they harden. It's what my heart does. When God's word searches out men's motives and exposes their hearts, two reactions are possible. Men may see themselves as they really are and then repent from their sin and turn to the Lord. But another kind of response is possible also. They can harden. We can harden our hearts against the one who exposes our need and resolve with bitterness to be rid of his influence. My friends, I've been thinking about this picture lately. Um, there, are many, there are many of us who are experiencing difficult trials in life and trials are like a fire. And what happens when material goes into fire? It can either be softened or it can be hardened. It's either gold that is melted or it is some kind of clay that potters put in and fire it and it hardens. This parable serves its purpose. It further blinds the blind. For although the religious leaders know the parable has been told against them, instead of repenting, they look for another way to assault, arrest Jesus yet once again. And we will see that. In that next confrontation, Jesus makes it clear that the authority of God, His authority, is unquestionable. And we will see that next week. Well, let's conclude Mark, the shortest catechism. Who is Jesus? Jesus' supreme authority is evident not only in his claim to be Son of God and the Messiah, but also <coughs> in his complete control over supposed authorities of Israel. And what did Jesus come to do? The parable of the vineyard puts Jesus' coming in the context of Israel's sad history. He has come like the prophets before him, to demand from Israel God's due, the fruits of repentance and faith. And how should someone respond to who we see in this text, to this, the person and work of Jesus? How should we respond? Repent and believe. Because unbelievers' problem here is not ignorance. It's not ignorance. It's rebellion. Did you notice the battle going on in our text? Did you notice why the leaders were acting the way they were? Look back at verse 32 of chapter 11. They were afraid of the people. Look at verse 12. Of chapter 12. They feared the people. My friends, here is a battle going on. And it's the fear of man versus the fear of God. I mentioned the other week, the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. My friends, in our text, the religious leaders 
fear of man. The ones they are called to serve and love and shepherd and care for. Their fear is huge. Because man in their view is huge. But their view of God as the holy righteous one who demonstrates perfect justice and mercy. It is very very small. My friends, where do you find yourselves in this text? Are you ignoring the Jesus that's right in front of you in His Word because you're afraid of what somebody else is going to think? Are you afraid to, to, to fall on your face before Jesus because you're, you're scared of what somebody else is going to think of you? My friends, that's one of the reasons we have the church because it's, it's a it's a group of people God is gathering and growing who really don't care what other people think about them when it comes to Jesus. Because look around. This place is and will continue to be filled with people who fear God more than they fear man. And oh, how we need one another. Because let's face it, who of us doesn't struggle with the fear of man? In here, in these walls with one another, our vision is recalibrated. We see man as small and God as unbelievably huge and big and mighty and majestic. Well, let's go back to how we began. Really, it's actually not surprising that God's truth shows up in the most unlikely places. Listen to these words once again. I fight authority, but authority always wins. Well, I fight authority. Authority always wins. Well, I've been doing it since I was a young kid. Original sin, man. You got it there. I come out grinning. Well, I fight authority. Authority always wins. Indeed, man fights God's authority, but God's authority always wins in the end. With that in mind, my friends, where do you stand right now when it comes to your respect for and submission to the authority of God? Jesus is making it clear that His authority is absolute. As we will see and as you hear in Matthew 28, all authority has indeed been given to him. No one can be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Christianity is exclusive. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And yet, as we will see as we keep going in Mark, at the center of this exclusivity is a Savior, get this, who dies for his enemies. Jesus will be rejected so that anyone who trusts in Him, anyone who submits to His authority, will not be rejected, but rather accepted by the Father. My friends, remember that Jesus will by no means reject anyone who comes to Him in repentance and faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this portion of your word that indeed serves as a warning. It is a picture of judgment. And Father, we thank you that your, your warnings are great blessings to those who believe. Or those who, like 
The man says, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, Father, may this warning be in reality a blessing for all of your gathered people. As we in go forward, acknowledging and submitting to the authority of Jesus, knowing that he is a king who not only will subdue us to himself, but he will defend us against all his and our enemies, in particular the enemies of sin and death. Father, we thank you for the absolute authority of King Jesus. May we rest in his strong arms, for we pray in his name.